January. That's always Epiphany on the church calendar. And so today is um, the 8th, of course, two days after Epiphany. So we're officially out of the Christmas season and beginning the new season um, that will move us toward the next big cycle in the Christian year, which is Lent and Easter, which is later this spring. So in this in-between time, um, Pastor Andy will be starting next week a series on the Gospel of John, preaching through John, actually, for the rest, most of the rest of the year. Uh, but for today, we'll focus on the emphasis that the, the Bible places and the story of Jesus places on Jesus' baptism when he was uh, out of the cradle and grown up um, to a young man and uh, makes his public debut at the River Jordan and is uh, baptized by John the Baptist there. So we'll be reading that scripture and talking about that episode a little bit later. Um, if we want, one thing that Pastor Andy mentioned last week, um, and he's, he was talked about this through all the Christmas season, is that if you want to know what God is like, you need to look at Jesus. And so we've been looking at Jesus, especially the, G, the baby Jesus, um, as he's born and we know so familiarly through the Christmas story. Um, but he also um, mentioned something that last week that kind of caught my attention. I don't know if you were wondering about this or not, but I've been wondering about this for the week at least. He said that something about Jesus was that, um, and he was preaching from Hebrews chapter 1, where the, the verse says, God has spoken to us now in these last days through his son, Jesus. And Pastor Andy said something about that Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. And I was wondering, it kind of made me wonder, what, what, what exactly is all, you know, if we unpack that sentence, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus became like us? And what does it mean that we can become like him? That might even be the bigger question. I don't know whether you've dealt with that issue or not. Um, but I want to address those two questions today. What does it mean for Jesus to be like us? And what does it mean for us to become like Jesus? The first question is basically a question of identity. Who are we? If Jesus became like us, who is it that, who's the us that Jesus became like? Um, so as we think about our identity, I guess it depends on who you're asking, um, what your identity might be. So for example, if we were to ask a business person or someone in marketing, uh, they would say that our, we are uh, basically consumers, and our job is to buy, purchase things, right? Um, the entertainment industry, they would identify us as spectators uh, to be entertained. And so our job is to passively listen or hear um, or watch uh, the performance that they put on. Um, if we were to get more personal, maybe we might ask, um, what kinds of messages did you hear about yourself from your parents or your siblings, um, your family? How did they identify you? What labels did you get stuck with when you were a kid? Were you the middle peacemaker or were you the oldest one that was responsible or were you the spoiled youngest kid in the family? Um, how did they identify you and how has that affected your life? Um, are you the shining star of the family, or are you the black sheep? Um, we get all sorts of labels stuck on us when we're in a, in a family as kids. Um, or going to, going to school, your teachers and classmates, um, were you part of the athlete group, the jocks, or the popular kids, or were the nerds, or the outcasts? Um, were you the teacher's pet, 
Or were you the one that, you know, when conferences came, well, she's just not living up to her potential, but I'm sure she could do better. That category of, of folks. Um, those are all stickers that get put on us, labels um, that shape our identity. Um, at work, you might have different labels too. Someone might be identifying you in, in some other fashion. Um, or even yourself. What, kind, what is your self-image? What do you think about yourself? These are all the questions of identity that we're going to deal with today. Now, I don't know, I can't say for sure who all of you are, but our Christian story tells us a little bit more about what our identity is like, especially in light of <clears throat> the passages that we're going to read this morning. If we look into Jesus' human experience, um, we can see a little bit more of what we're talking about when we talk about who we are as humans. I'd like to revisit the passage that Korah read from Isaiah chapter 42, a couple of the verses, and this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and <clears throat> Isaiah says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people." and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah is speaking here about a person, a servant, in whom God is pleased, upon whom God's Spirit will rest, and through whom God's work of justice and reconciliation will occur. <clears throat> Our Christian tradition has interpreted that as Jesus, being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This servant is identified as the king. He's chosen by God. And that word in Hebrew is Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, and kings were anointed. That's how they were inaugurated or initiated into their kingship. They were anointed with oil, and the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. So the Messiah would be this person upon whom the Spirit of God would rest, and they would be given the mission of bringing justice and reconciliation to the world, and reaching out to the Gentile world too, not just the Jewish people. The Lord declares, <clears throat> this, this also ties in with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm that was always sung uh, whenever a new king was inaugurated. And Psalm 2, six, verses 6 and 7 say this, The Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in, his, in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. And the king then responds, the king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And that's how the new kings were inaugurated in Israel. Well, this language gets put together, mixed together with the passages from Isaiah when we come to the story about Jesus being baptized. Um, and so when we read in chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus is called my son. And so he's, God is identifying Jesus as the King, the Messiah who was to come and on whom the Spirit would rest and, on who, and through whom God's mission to reconcile the world to himself would be fulfilled. In order to accomplish this mission, Jesus had to clarify his identity as a human and as a person called by God. He had to figure out what God's will for him was, and then he had to go ahead and pursue the calling and establish his ministry. The story in Matthew chapter 3 tells us how Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and marked out as God's son. 
So, if you don't mind, um, I would like you to join me in standing for reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, as you're able to stand. And to kind of illustrate the fact that Jesus came to be among us people, I'm going to move down among the people and read the passage from here. This is chapter 3, beginning with verse 1 in Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then skipping down to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him. He said, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. So then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Thanks. You may be seated. So did you hear the language that was in the the Old Testament as well, talking about Jesus as my Son and the Holy Spirit resting on him? Jesus was identified in this episode as the Messiah publicly in front of all the other people that came to be baptized by John. It's basically another kind of epiphany, a small epiphany, but one that was years later after the Magi, the three wise men, visited Jesus. Here Jesus is um, establishing himself, and God is recognizing and identifying Jesus as the one who was going to be the Messiah to save the world. So here we kind of have the answer to this first question. In what way did Jesus become like us? Well, he was baptized by John, along with all the other sinners who were coming to, be, to repent of their sins. Now, of course, that brings up the question, but Jesus didn't sin. He was sinless. Well, that's true. But he joined himself with sinful humans and identified himself with us in that way by being baptized by John. That was a very visible, symbolic action that Jesus was doing so that he could be identified with all the people that needed to be saved. Even though Jesus himself was sinless, he came to make a way for all of us humans to be in a right relationship with God. And so he was baptized with all the other people that came to John. Now, there's a second aspect of this baptism scene that points us to what Jesus experienced when he became human. Uh, Jesus was affirmed by God and identified by God as his beloved son. The phrase was, this is my son whom I love. Those were powerful words for Jesus to hear from his heavenly Father. It would be what would sustain Jesus through his ministry, through his teaching, through the opposition that he soon faced from his teachings, through all of his healings, the suffering, and his death. Those words would be what he could hang his trust on, knowing that he was loved by God and chosen by God for this mission. 
after his baptism, Jesus immediately, and, and we, hear, we can read this story in Matthew and the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke as well. All of them show that Jesus, immediately after his baptism, Jesus goes into the desert where he's tempted to give up his calling, tempted by the devil, and before he begins his public ministry. And so that <clears throat> illustrates how much he needed to establish his identity before he was faced with persecution or temptation or trials. His baptism prepared Jesus for this, um, to resist those temptations, and to keep on task with fulfilling his ministry. He knew that God loved him and anointed him for his ministry, and knowing that would sustain him through all the rest of his earthly ministry. Another thing about the Messiah that we uh, know from Old Testament texts is that the Messiah represents the people before God. And as such, what's true of the Messiah is also true of his people. So we're circling back now to what Pastor Andy said, that Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. And so when we, are experience, when we experience our baptism, we are following in Jesus' footsteps and experiencing the same kind of affirmation from God and the same words that Jesus heard are words that we hear from God. So if we're going to be like Jesus... Um, we need to probably do what Jesus did. And again, Pastor Andy mentioned last week that following Jesus can start by following his example. So I'm going to talk a little bit about baptism, how we practice and understand baptism and what it does for us. Baptism um, identifies us, first of all, as God's children. Um, Above any other role or identity that we might have in the world, This is primary for us as Christians. God identifies us as His dearly loved children. And He enables us, because the Holy Spirit comes to us at that time, it enables us to remain faithful to our calling as Christians. And we can act in accord with this new relationship that we have with God. So, um, baptism, let me, I'll I'll repeat this line. This is a line that's also, I think, in your sermon notes, if you're following along, if you had a um, worship bulletin. Baptism symbolizes our initiation into the covenant people of God. Okay, I'll repeat that. Baptism symbolizes our initiation into the covenant people of God. And we need to break that down and take, a, take those, that sentence um, in three different pieces. First of all, we're going to talk about symbol. Symbols um, come in many forms. They can be verbal. They can be visual, like a logo or an icon of some sort. Um, they can be completely um, um, without any kind of images. It can be a word. Um, it can be lots of different forms, but they all carry a meaning. Sometimes our tendency is to say, well, it's just a symbol, which means it doesn't really mean much. But really, symbols have a lot of meaning. They carry enormous amounts of meanings. Now, <clears throat> I want to ask you... Uh, to give me a little bit of feedback on some of the, some images I'm going to, we're going to project on the screen here in just a second. Um, and you tell me what thoughts or feelings these symbols um, bring out for you, okay? So let's take a look at the first one. Here's the first picture of a symbol. Actually, two different pictures of the same kind of symbol. What kinds of meanings do you see in these pictures? What is that, freedom? Okay, anybody else? Courage? Okay. Sacrifice? 
Okay. Okay. Victory. All right, let's go to the next slide. What thoughts and feelings do you have when you see this symbol? I'm sorry? Evil. Okay. Okay. Any others? Okay. Okay. All right. Kind of lots of negative words. <laughs> um, did you know that the swastika was actually an ancient form of a cross in Persia um, before the Nazis uh, adopted that as their symbol? And so for now, from now on through history, that ancient cross symbol is going to be spoiled as any other kind of symbol, right? Let's go to the next picture, the next symbol. Okay, what does that represent to you? Okay, promise? <laughs> Care bears, okay. All right, some symbols can change meaning, just like we talked about the swastika. Rainbows can change meanings too. For people that are brought up in the biblical tradition, the story, the symbol is, is a symbol of God's promise to Noah, right? That's when the rainbow was set up. Um, for us in our culture, this often is a symbol for the LGBT movement and gay pride. So symbols, depending on their context, can change meaning, but still have powerful effects on us. All right, one more image. There's another example of a symbol whose meaning has changed. Of course, the cross was basically an instrument of torture and death. It'd be like, for us, um, a gallows or a noose or an electric chair, if we were to see that. But because of Jesus and what the Christian faith stands for, um, that symbol of torture and death has changed into a symbol that represents what to you? What are some examples that the cross... Hope for you? Okay. Okay. Forgiveness, yeah. Okay, so you see what effect symbols have on us? So a symbol is not just a symbol. One last example. Um, lots of people wear wedding rings. Um, it is just basically a piece of metal, right? And it's, I don't know what it's worth now these days, but we bought it pretty, pretty um, cheaply back when we were married many years ago. But suppose um, I were to lose this, or to even take it off, Debbie's going to notice that right away, and she's going to start asking questions. So it's not just a symbol. It affects our relationship, because if I have misplaced or taken off or lost my ring, it's going to mean something to her, and vice versa. So symbols aren't just symbols. They pack a lot of meaning and significance for our lives, and for it affects our emotions and our thoughts. Um, Baptism is also a symbol. It's a symbolic act. And even though it uses just a common element of water, which is all over our earth, all sorts of places, um, it still packs a lot of meaning and significance for Christians as their initiation into the covenant people of God. For baptism, it communicates truth. It motivates us. It touches our hearts and motivates us to action. And it empowers us to live out our Christian life. So before we start you know, dismissing baptism as just a symbol, let's think about how important symbols are for us. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is that it's our initiation. Baptism is kind of like your initiation into the Christian faith or the Christian community. Um, as humans, we like to make rituals out of all sorts of milestones in our lives. 
And so we have initiations and inaugurations. We're going to have a, a big inauguration here in a couple weeks for our president. Um, we have, I remember when I was in Cub Scouts, I had an initiation into the Cub Scouts. And when I graduated from a wolf, my wolf, wolf badge to my bear badge, there was an initiation rite that went along with that. I have to tell you a story of, of initiation rite that it's one of the most unique ones that I've ever heard. Um, my wife, Debbie, is part Canadian. Her mother was born and raised in Newfoundland and um, in a seacoast uh, sea town. And many of her family were fishermen and worked in the fishing industry. And uh, when Debbie was very young, she moved away from, she was born there and moved away from Newfoundland, was raised in the United States. And visited Newfoundland, I think, maybe once when she was a young child and for years never, never went back. Um, a few years ago, she and her three sisters all went back to Newfoundland to visit long-lost family that they had seen for years and years and years. Um, part of their visit there involved the initiation of getting screeched in. That's a term that they used. Let me tell you about it, a little bit about it. In order to welcome them as official Canadians and especially Newfoundlanders, um, they went through this initiation rite where... They had to, you know, have you seen the, like the Gorton fishermen, you know, the big yellow slickers that the fishermen wear and the big yellow hat? They had to put on one of those yellow slicker hats, stand in a tub full of ice water and codfish heads, and recite this pledge that pledged the fact that you were going to be a faithful Newfoundlander. Um, then they had to kiss a cod and then take a drink of this rum that they called screech. And once you got all that done, then you were officially awarded a certificate that said you've been screeched in and are now an official Newfoundlander. It's all in fun, of course, um, but there's initiation rites for all sorts of things. For us, getting wet in some form or fashion um, and having certain liturgies read and pronounced over us, that's what we call our initiation rite into the Christian faith or into the Christian community. So we do some funny things. We, get, we pour people or dunk people or sprinkle people with water. Um, but that packs meaning for us as Christians. Um, the third part of that phrase, baptism symbolizes our initiation into the covenant people of God. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be part of a covenant people. Um, there's meaning for that, um, what the covenant means. Um, and when we read through the New Testament, when we talk, read about baptism in the New Testament... It's mentioned numerous times, and there's examples of Jesus getting baptized and other new believers getting baptized. And Paul, in his writings, makes reference to the fact that we've been, his readers have been baptized. But they don't really talk much about the theological meaning, the significance of what baptism means and does for us, except for a few places. I'd like to read three different passages to you, and we're going to find that there's a common theme there that all ties in with covenant. The first passage comes from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. <clears throat> Here's what this says, what Peter wrote. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he went and preached to spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Now, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. 
It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Noah is mentioned there, and as we just saw or reminded ourselves with that rainbow, there was a covenant that God made with Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by flood. And so by referencing Noah, Peter is connecting us as Christians with Noah's covenant, God's covenant with Noah. Second passage comes from the writings of Paul in Colossians chapter 2. Here's what Paul wrote. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with Him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now, the reference to the circumcision goes back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's when that practice was first initiated among the Israelite people. Um, So the reference here that Paul is making to baptism connects again to another covenant, this time the covenant that God made with Abraham and set out the people of Israel um, as God's special people, chosen people to carry God's message of love to the world. Okay, third example of the description of baptism comes from 1 Corinthians. Again, it's another writing of the Apostle Paul. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. These things happen to them as examples for us. So again, Paul is connecting the people that have been baptized in in the name of Jesus back to the baptism that the people experienced in the Old Testament with Moses. It's kind of not a literal baptism, but by traveling under the cloud that guided them by day and passing through the Red Sea on dry ground, that was their baptism of sorts that tied them in with the covenant. And we know that God made a covenant with people of Israel and Moses because we have the Ten Commandments and all of those other laws of the covenant that God established with them. So again, there's a connection that the New Testament makes between baptism and covenant. And when people are in a covenant, we have an agreement between ourselves and between God, and we have certain obligations and responsibilities and privileges as a result of that. So God initiates covenants, and we humans respond. And so when we see baptism as a covenant initiation, then we are celebrating our identity as part of God's people, God's new people under Jesus Christ. And when we are baptizing people here in our church, we're welcoming them into the family of God, the worldwide universal family of God. Now, that's interesting because this challenges us maybe um, on a couple of points where we've often thought about baptism and what the common understanding of it is. Um, I was brought up under the understanding that baptism is basically a, a public confession of my faith. But when we think about baptism as covenant, that really kind of puts that on the back burner, and it's really not that big of a deal. What's more important is that God is acting. It's not anything that we do. God takes the initiative in establishing a covenant, and He welcomes us into His family. So baptism really isn't so much a profession of faith. It's Um, really a claim that a profession that Jesus makes on us. Jesus is claiming us as one of His people. 
So God is the actor, and we are receiving God's grace in that, in that action. Um, it's a profession of Christ's claim on, on us where God is acting. We are the recipients. And so, I guess, that means that we need to ask the question of when and how and who can become part of the people of God. And I think the gospel says pretty clearly that it's anybody. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter uh, what race you are, what gender you are. Um, when a person becomes part of the body of Christ, they should be baptized because that's how they are initiated into that people. So that's why we can baptize infants. We can baptize those who are infirm. We can baptize the elderly. We can baptize those with mental or physical disabilities. It's not how much you understand or what you're doing. It's about who God is welcoming into the community. And that's what baptism essentially means. It's welcoming us into the covenant people of God. Now, aside from that theological meaning, there are a couple of promises being exchanged in baptism. Uh, One is that baptism symbolizes God's promises to us. Uh, The main promise is that God says He will forgive and cleanse us of our sins. That's the big thing. That's why John was baptizing people at the Jordan River, for repentance of sins. And that's why Jesus identified Himself with those who were coming to John as well, to symbolize the repentance of sins. Acts 2.36 contains Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's basically the first Christian sermon that we have recorded in the Bible. And he says, in his concluding remarks, he says, let all of Israel be sure of this. God made Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom Lord our God will call. And in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, it kind of reinforces this by talking about cleansing. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So this idea of being forgiven and cleansed and having our past wiped away is one of the important, most important promises that God makes to us when we are baptized. Let me, I want to illustrate that with a clip from a, a movie that's one of my favorites. Um, you've probably seen it. Many of you have seen this before. Um, it's from the Shawshank Redemption. It's a prison escape story, basically. And the escape scene is a very dramatic illustration of what baptism is like and the cleansing that we have. So we're going to see a couple clips from that. I want to caution, there's a couple of profanities in this clip, um, but I think it really highlights exactly what it is that happens when we are cleansed of our sins as well. So if we can play the, that clip, the first clip, please. That character, Andy Dufresne, had been in prison for 19 years and been plotting his escape that whole time. And so you can see from that scene of what, what an impact it had being free and being clean after crawling through the sewer system for 500 yards, what it meant for him to be, have that rain wash all the filth off of him. That's a huge, wonderful example of what baptism does for us. Whatever our past has been, whatever experiences we've had in the past, 
God's love and forgiveness can wash away that. And that's what we symbolize when we are baptized. And there's one other short clip that, talks, that shows us explicitly what it's like in this new life that we experience from our baptism. Pay close attention to the, the type of clothes that Andy's wearing and the interior of the car that he's driving in, okay? Let's play that second clip. Do you see what, what color was his shirt? White, yeah. And the interior of the car, the white upholstery, it all, all symbolizes the purity that we experience after our, our um, forgiveness by God. Um, again, I apologize for the profanities, but it explains very clearly what God does for us in our baptism. Now, um, the, another thing that's interesting, did you, in the escape scene when Andy tears off his filthy clothes and he lets the rain wash him clean, the first Christians, they were baptized without any clothes on. They were naked because that symbolized the new start. And, it, and that goes along with the language that Paul uses in some of his letters, talking about how you have taken off your old life and put on Christ. That's actually changing your clothes, you're exchanging your garments for the kind of freedom and the kind of purity that you now have as a new child, a new creation under God. Well, there's another promise that God makes to us, the new life that we have in Christ, which was a little bit explained with that clip from, it showed Andy driving down the highway. That was his new life. He escaped to a new life and was starting all over again. And that's what God promises for us as well. Romans 6, verses 3 through 4 says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There's a third promise that God makes to us, and that is that he gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, remember that we talked about how the servant that Isaiah talked about was going to be anointed by the Spirit. And when Jesus was baptized... The Holy Spirit came down in a, in a visible form in the shape of a dove. That same Spirit that God gives to the Messiah and to Jesus, He gives to us. And so we, again, are following in the same pattern that Jesus uh, blazed, the trail that Jesus blazed for us. Romans 8.11 says that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. That spirit allows us and empowers us to live a new life and fulfill the promises that we make to God in baptism, which we'll get to in just a second. One last promise that God makes to us is that he, is, that he says to us, you are my child and part of my family. Now, we know how important families are in our early development and how important they can be in our, in our later lives. Romans 8, 14 to 16 says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba, Father, for this His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And Paul also writes in Galatians 3, In Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. So again, when we are baptized, it symbolizes 
the fact that we've been adopted as God's own children and have all the privileges and the rights that His children have. Now, I mentioned that there are some things that we do in baptism, and so we are making some promises as well. I want to review those real quickly. First of all, is we're basically saying to God, I believe in you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Um, there is a, a cognitive element to baptism and to conversion, and it affects the way we see truth and our belief in God's truth is one thing that we are affirming when we are baptized. Secondly, we're saying to God, I repent of my sin and my self-centeredness, just like the people who came to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. And just like Jesus was identifying himself, um, he was repenting, showing us the way to repentance. A third thing that we are promising God is that we are committing ourselves to him. We commit ourselves, we trust you, we're going to follow you with our lives. And the last thing we say is that I want to be your child and part of your family. So there are some things that we are saying and doing when we are going through the symbolic act of baptism. And those promises are what we are making to God in our baptism. So to recap, why should we be baptized? Why is it important for Christians? Well, one, Jesus was baptized. So for wanting to be like Jesus, we, want, we should follow his example. Two, Jesus told us to be baptized and to baptize other people. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, um, Matthew kind of starts and ends with baptism scenes, basically, or references to baptism. Jesus says, I'm going away from you, but in the meantime, before I return, I'll be with you in spirit, and you're to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize believers and teach them everything that I've taught you. So he tells us that we should baptize And the example of all the other Christian conversions in the New Testament are tied to baptism. Either immediately before or immediately afterwards, uh, the conversion or the confession of faith, people are baptized into the Christian community. So if we want to mark our acceptance among the people of God, we become baptized. That's what Christians do. That's our initiation rite into the people of God. So the sacrament of baptism is basically saying in a symbolic way... um, Come in, be washed, be clean. You're loved by God and by His people. You belong with us. And that is a powerful feeling of identity. When we know that we belong to a place, to a people, to a group, um, that gives us uh, a sense of security. It gives us a sense of purpose and mission. And because Jesus was and still is the Messiah, God says to us today exactly what He said to Jesus You're my dear child. I'm delighted with you. We need to hear that. We need to hear and believe those words from God. Listen to them being addressed to yourself. You are my dear child. I'm delighted with you. If you were to put your name at the beginning of that sentence, what does that have? What does that say to you? Rick, you are my dear child. I'm delighted with you. Put your name at the beginning of that sentence and think about it just for a second. When you hear these words, let them change you, mold you, shape you into somebody new, into the person that God created you to be. God sees us not as we are in ourselves, no matter whatever identity we might have, but He sees us as we are in Jesus Christ, as new creatures, new creations. Now, if you've never been baptized, you might want to think about that. And if you are interested, you can mark that on your connection card, and Pastor Andy will follow up with you and talk to you about what baptism means and all the details that go into that. He'll be in touch. If you're already baptized, 
this might be a good opportunity to remember your baptism. What was it like? And if you were baptized as an infant, you may not remember the specifics, but you can remember the fact that you were baptized and you are God's dearly loved child. When we remember our baptism, it reminds us that God is not some kind of a bully in the, up above us or some angry, threatening parent figure who's ready to yell at us or kick us out of the house when we do something wrong. Um, he's not a scolding teacher who gets upset when we don't make the grade. Focusing on that image of God, those images, only guarantees that we're going to fail at some point when we face temptation. But if we remember the powerful words of love that God spoke, you're my child, you are dearly loved, that can empower us because we have the Holy Spirit and lead us to continue with our lives and establish ourselves as being firmly in God's family. And remember, remembering our baptism reminds us that we're more than just our household income or our GPA or the production numbers that we have to help the company's bottom line. We're not just the boxes or the ceilings that we face from society. Uh, we're not slaves to our upbringing or our race or our gender. We are part of God's family. We are dearly loved children of His. When we remember our baptism, we're remembering who we truly are truly are at our core, the way God created us. So we're going to remember our baptism because that's important for us today. And to help us do that, I want us to take another look at another video clip. This comes from The Lion King. Um, Simba, the, the main protagonist in the story, has run away from his pride, his group, his family, and has been living a life of freedom and carefree living but not facing up to his responsibilities to inherit the leadership of the pride. And he has an epiphany, um, believe it or not, as we're talking about that, when he comes across uh, a wise old baboon named Rafiki who introduces him and tells him that he knows where his dead father, Mufasa, is and that he can visit him. So that's what this clip does for us. Let's think, look at it and think about our baptism. When we remember who we are in Christ, we can take our place in God's creation among God's people. There are some churches that um, when you come into the building in the main vestibule, they have a, a baptismal font. Uh, it's basically a, a bowl with water in it on a pedestal. And that reminds people as we come into the sanctuary that they've been baptized. Um, on, and on this day in other churches and other traditions, the, the Sunday where they recognize or commemorate the baptism of our Lord, that's what this Sunday is called, the baptism of our, our Lord Sunday, the priest will take a sponge or some kind of little instrument on a stick, dip it into water and fling it all over the congregation, sprinkling everybody so they can remember physically their baptism. Well, it just so happens that I'm not going to sprinkle you today, I won't get you wet. But when we come forward to receive communion, we're going to have the opportunity to remember our baptism. Um, there are two small baptismal fonts on either, either side. After you've received the elements and partaken of communion, uh, we're all going to be served from one station in the middle here today. Um, you can go out by that side, and if you want to, there's no pressure to do this, but if you'd like to remember your baptism, you can go to those bowls of water, touch your finger into the water, and remember your baptism. If you'd like, you can touch your forehead or make a small cross on your forehead with your wet finger. Or if you want to go whole hog, you can make the sign of the cross 
It's not, it's not limited to Catholics, but um, Catholics do that, but it also can be a Christian symbol for us. If you want to remember your baptism, you're invited to do that as you're making your way back to your seats after you receive communion. Remember who you are as you remember your baptism. As we approach the table, um, I want us to remember what God's mighty acts of salvation have been. So I'm going to read a, a short uh, summary of what God has done for us through history. God is all-powerful, the ruler of the universe, and worthy of our glory and praise. So we will recall the mighty works God has done for us. At God's command, all things came to be, the vast expanse of space, galaxies, suns, and the planets in their courses, and this earth, God's good creation. God brought forth humans. He blessed us with memory and reason and skill and made us the rulers of His good creation. But we turned against God. We betrayed His trust, and we turned against one another. Again and again, God called us to return through a variety of channels. God called Israel to be His people for the sake of the rest of the world. God revealed His will through the gift of the law. He spoke His word through the prophets. Yet still, we ignored and resisted. But in these last days, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world. God's Holy Spirit anointed Jesus to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to announce that the time had come when God would save the world and all of its people. Jesus healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. By the baptism of His suffering, death, and resurrection, God gave birth to the church, and He delivered us from slavery to sin and death. And He made with us a new covenant by the water of baptism and by the Spirit. When the Lord Jesus ascended, He promised to be with us always. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He gave Himself up for us. He took bread, He gave thanks to God, and He broke the bread, and then He gave it to His disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.